So let us pray, my sisters, my brothers, my faith siblings. Dear Holy One, just as we heard in the text that Lori so lovingly read to us, where our ancient faith ancestors were struggling because they were unsure of what to do, and they had seen how Solomon's temple had been so beautiful and what they were trying to rebuild looked so meager in comparison. God, we are mindful that we are in a similar position as we are in a transition time here in our faith community. And we can look back at what once was with the gilded glasses, thinking it was more spectacular and beautiful than it maybe actually was. Think of the work ahead, not knowing what we're going to do in this interim period with a new interim pastor and trying to figure out how to be who you want us to be in this time and this place. And so we can identify with their feelings. But God, we take heart because you promised you would be with us and that we should not fear. And so we ask that you would guide us, not just this morning, but in the next couple of years, as we struggle with each other and with you, how to be what you want us to be. That we might be a witness that you are alive and well in Ashland, Oregon. Oh, Holy One, we ask for your blessings upon us. And we're mindful of the beautiful poetic words of the modern day prophet, John O'Donohue, who has written, though our destination is not yet clear, we can trust in the promise of this opening and that we will unfurl ourselves into the grace of this beginning that is it at one with our desire to love you and follow you. Holy One, we ask that you would awaken our spirits to adventure and that you will encourage us to hold nothing back, trusting that we will learn to find ease in risk and that soon we will be at home in a new rhythm for our soul senses, that the world awaits what you will do with us, in us, and through us. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to give you a little context for this text, you know, poor Lori, those names, you know, why, why couldn't they just be Bob and Sam and Molly and Bill and Julie? Why Zerubbabel and Haggai and Jehoshadak? I mean, you think they would get money for how long their names were, but anyway. So to give you an idea on the, the context of this text, this text is uh, actually in the lectionary for this week. Now, what do I mean by that word lectionary, if you're unfamiliar with it? Well, the Bible, to get back to, is really a library of 66 texts that are ancient uh, faith ancestors 
compiled over about a thousand year period, written by 40 plus who knows how many authors, and 66 texts describing the acts of God and the thoughts of God and the words of God as determined by our faith ancestors and put into this book we call the Bible. Well, modern faith leaders of various denominations and backgrounds got together to develop a lectionary, which is a series of readings covering a three-year cycle so that every three years we would go through this book called the Bible and take out portions that give us a full context of what's in the book. Now, the, one of the goals of the lectionary is that folks like me can't stand up here and just cherry pick what I think are the really good parts <laughs> and edit out the parts that are just sketchy at best and how did that get in there and what were they thinking? So the idea is, is that we'll get the full picture of what's in the book over a three-year period. So this reading this morning is from the lectionary that Christians all over the world are using this text this morning to talk about. So I didn't cherry pick it as we're beginning something new here about uh, in a similar way our faith ancestors were. So that's to give you some context. And we're going to follow the lectionary so that I can't cherry pick and just pick out what I think is really good and so I'm not self-editing. So that's one thing. So in this text... To give you some historical background, according to ancient Near East history, in the year 538 of the Common Era, what used to be called BC, BCE now, before the Common Era, uh, a, a man named Cyrus got control of what was the Babylonian Empire, and one of the projects he initiated was to release captives that had been taken during the building of the Babylonian Empire. And so our Hebrew ancestors were released from over 70 years of captivity to go home to what is now modern-day Palestine and Israel. And they were allowed to rebuild the temple of God as, as they saw fit. And some of those folks that came back, so this is uh, the reading that uh, Lori gave us, is about 18 years into that project. It's about 520 before the common era. And the prophet Haggai came and said, take heart, because the refugees that had come back were struggling. They were struggling to find food and shelter and, and rebuild. And, and some of the folks that were among them were really, really, really old, like uh, Don Seabart. And <laughs> they had seen the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the the Temple of Solomon, and they saw the little ramshackle thing they were trying to build was just puny compared to the glory of what was, and they were disheartened. And so God <clears throat> sent the prophet to them to say, take heart, be of courage, I am with you. My spirit is with you. And I'll bring resources. They didn't have a lot of resources, but I will open the heavens and you will have resources to build what I want you to build. Now, it won't be like what was, but it will be what needs to be for here and now. And so that's the gist of, of this word. And I love in there, it says, do not be afraid. I don't, if you're not a biblical scholar, 
that phrase, do not be afraid, appears more than 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. <laughs> do not be afraid, be not afraid. And so as we're beginning this journey with a new interim pastor and a new time of transition to get ready for a settled pastor, it can be a fearful time because the honest truth is none of us knows where we're going. I want to tell you up front, I do not have a grand vision. Some, I do not have uh, schematic drawings from on high written by the finger of God on tablets of stone that we're going to build in fashion that I know what we're going to do here. I don't. Don't have a clue. And I'm not going to try to sell you into something or tell, we got to do this or we got to do... I trust that together we're going to co-discern how we're to be, what we're to be, as we are now. Not what used to be, but as we are now, and that we will become together. So this is a time of transition. It's not just a transition for the church, but it's a transition for me personally. I have spent the last 17 years of my work career as a hospice chaplain, and I gotta say, this is a lot more fun. <laughs> so far, it's been one week. And, um, but it's a transition for me, as well as for us. And Jim Stumbo has wisely told me prior that I will be shaped and formed by this work in this congregation, as you will be shaped and formed by me. We're going to be working on each other. That's what we do. That's what people do. And so it's a time of transition. And so the question is, well, why would I choose to do this? I just turned 70 years old. Why would I choose to do this? Well, it comes in large part from what I learned being with so many dying people. In the 17 years, I was with more than 3,000 folks that died. And they taught me a lot. And one of the, the key lessons I learned from that work is what I call the dying well paradox. And I phrase it, you've probably heard something like this before. Uh, philosophers and theologians have been saying this for thousands of years. Sadly, few people listen. But it, it goes something like this. Being aware that we are dying and will die is a great motivator to really live until then. To really live a meaningfully engaged life while we can. And conversely, living a meaningfully engaged life while we can is the best preparation for our eventual dying. And so that's what I've learned. And I would like to spend the next season of my life for myself and for those around me to learn to live a really engaged, meaningful life while we can because it is very important. So, what, how do, what is it, an engaged, meaningful life? Well, another thing I've learned over my many years of work and study is that meaning comes to us by what we do with and for others. That's where we get so much of our sense of meaning. It is what we do with and for others, which is what I love about our church's mission statement. 
that together we are on the way of following Jesus, on the way of the path of radical love. That we're doing this together. That's what makes life so incredibly meaningful. Now, as I say, I don't have a specific plan on how we're going to do that. We're going to learn as we go, all of us. And one of the things that I got out of the text this morning, as well as the wonderful leadership retreat that Dr. Karen McClintock led us in a couple of weeks ago, is that one of the key elements for this walk we are beginning today is going to be the word faith. It's a Bible word. But uh, Karen brought to us on the retreat the Hebrew of the word faith literally means to go where you don't know where you're going, but to go anyway. And the Greek of that word faith that's in the Bible is the word pistis, which literally means trust. So when you read in the Bible the word faith, it could just as easily be the word trust. So what's going to be required of us as we go where we don't know where we're going, it's going to be a lot of trust. And a metaphor that uh, recently I came across that has been so helpful for me. I love to read Henry Nowen, who was a famous writer. And this is a passage of his that I read just prior to the retreat that was so synchronicitous to what Karen presented for us. So Henry Nowen wrote... Uh, about a meeting he had with a trapeze artist named Rodley. They were the famous Rodleys in Europe. Henry uh, grew up in the European continent. And he got to meet the trapeze troupe. And he got to meet Rodley. And so he records that one day while he was sitting with Rodley, the, the leader of the troupe in his caravan, talking about flying as a trapeze artist. And Rodley said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in the catcher. The public might think that I'm the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. The secret, Rodley shared, is that the flyer does nothing, and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over to the apron behind the catch bar. And Henry said, you do nothing? <laughs> nothing, Rodley replied. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. <laughs> I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's job to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them, or he might break mine, and that would be the end of both of us. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. And so as we begin this journey, I'm going to suggest this is a great metaphor for us. <laughs> to stretch out our arms, 
and trust and trust and trust. Because here's my thinking. If I can learn to live this way now, practice flying and trusting that the great catcher that we name God will be there to catch me. If I can practice that daily now, if I can practice that in the life of our congregation, if we can practice that, then my hope is, is that when I'm on my dying bed and a hospice chaplain comes to see me, I will have practiced enough to trust that the great catcher will be there to catch me and bring me home safely.